Good morning and welcome to this, the Word Festival 2018 Margaret Mahi Memorial Lecture. This lecture honours the legacy of Margaret Mahi, treasured Christchurch resident and a writer of surpassing dazzle and intellectual heft. Margaret gifted us both a life and a considerable body of work that were audacious in every respect, imaginatively boundless, linguistically pyrotechnic, narratively profound and sustaining. She wrote against the prevailing cultural grain and I think changed it significantly. Every two years, Word Festival invites a writer to speak in the spirit of and to the spirit of Mar Margaret Mahi's Mar literary legacy. In 2014, the inaugural speaker was novelist Elizabeth Knox. In 2016, US young adult novelist and publisher David Levithan. This year, our speaker is Barbara Else, novelist, playwright, editor, anthologist, literary consultant and agent, and steady activist on behalf of children's literature in New Zealand. Barbara's publishing career began with a bang in 1995 with the best-selling novel, The Warrior Queen, a comedy of marital breakdown and deeply enjoyable revenge. Mordant, witty, and with a wonderfully cool eye for sexual politics, social venalities, and the upheavals of family. Barbara's subsequent novels for adults continue this exploration of contemporary New Zealand marriage, family, friendship, and social mores with great deftness and style, a unique voice that made room in New Zealand letters for the burgeoning of the novel of middle-class manners. But Barbara's contribution to New Zealand publishing has been multifold. With her husband, Chris Else, She's played an important part in the professionalising of the New Zealand writing life. The ELSA's agency, Total Fiction Services, has, over the last quarter century, offered first-class and much-needed assessment, mentoring, editorial and agency services to many New Zealand writers, quietly lifting the bar, nudging nascent writers to their best, working on behalf of their books here and overseas. Additionally, as a commissioning editor for a series of Random House children's anthologies, Barbara kept alive the incidental freestanding story trove in New Zealand children's reading. In the words of our glorious funding agency, CNZ, Barbara built capacity and audience <laughs> in a form that Margaret Mahi and the school journalist side has been thin in this country's book trade. The 30 New Zealand Stories series enabled publication for many new writers finding their feet and they have been deeply treasured compilations in schools throughout the country. The cessation of that redoubtable series left a hole in New Zealand children's publishing that has yet to be filled. Barbara, meanwhile, not one to sit still, was embarking on her most marvellous creation yet, the Tales of Fontania series. Beginning with the travelling restaurant through the Queen and the Nobody Boy, the volume of possible endings to the not impossible, these fantasies are bravura feats of the imagination, brilliantly conceived and peopled, fiendishly plotted, propulsive, hilarious, chilling, surprising, anarchic, properly moral, addictive and nourishing in equal parts, and with a rich and inventive lexicon, a fabulous addition to the canon of New Zealand children's literature. I remember very clearly my first reading of The Travelling Restaurant, I was beguiled, enthralled, and full of admiration and wanting to pass it on, as you do, with a great new book. But I particularly remember thinking, oh, Margaret will love this. The Fontania tales are, like all excellent literature, properly singular. They have the dash and authority of a writer who is carrying all before her and who sounds decidedly herself. But they belong in a venerable tradition, too. Great Gothic fantasists for children of the last 50 years. They belong, I believe, on the shelf with Joan Aiken's Dido Twight series, Diana Wynne-Jones's Sinister Villains, and Roald Dahl's Tremulous Children. They belong with all the pirates, robbers, witches, kings and queens tumbling from the Mar Margaret Mahi oeuvre. And for something entirely different, or perhaps not, given the fierce and clever females in her children's fiction, Barbara's most recent publication is Go Girl, a best-selling collection of true stories about New Zealand women who have done extraordinary things. A book for girls and boys and their parents in these troubled times. Stories of female strength, determination, invention, and creation. Stories of talent, dreaming, 
and damn hard work, a perfect fit with their author. Please welcome Barbara Ellis. Oh, thank you, Kate. I was told that you'd say a very few words, and that, <laughs> that has rather, rather rocked me. Um, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, book lovers all, book lovers, the most important people in the world these days, I think. It was a tremendous honour to be asked to give this year's lecture. Margaret Mahi herself said many wise words about literature for children, and I hope my thoughts and anecdotes will add to an increasingly important matter, if only in the questions I've gathered here about reading and audience. Narrative and nourishment, story and self. Some months ago, I started thinking about what the mother's voice might mean in terms of storytelling. I scribbled on a post-it note, the mother's voice, the constant in a world of increasing size and surprises. But I had no idea where the words might lead. Then Rachel King asked if I'd present this lecture and suggested something about go girl, gender and imagination in storytelling. The mother's <coughs> voice had a set of companions and off they set. With each new tale, the writer's challenge is to find a voice or way of telling that a reader agrees to connect with. The story needs to bring you into a particular relationship an isolated space that's just you and the words. Even a realistic story creates its own new world, shaped differently from the real world, for the purposes of what it needs to say in its own voice. But how strange it is that there are similar stories in many cultures, all saying similar things to the different audiences. Or is it? No. Even before it's born, an infant is likely to recognise its mother's voice. With normal development, babies in utero hear at about 18 weeks gestation. At around 25 weeks, they can react to voices and sounds. Try going as I did <clears throat> in Christchurch, actually, several months pregnant to a thunderous stage performance of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> actually, that baby who's now well into her 40s has never stopped dancing herself. <clears throat> Even pre-birth, babies will be in range of the everyday rhythms of conversation. There's a pattern to vocal utterances, the soft or sharp, the lazy or rapid, high and joyful or deep and serious moments of our days. Different voices with their own rhythm and timbre could grow familiar. According to a note in Brian Boyd's On the Origin of Stories, in controlled conditions, it was shown that even 45 minutes after birth, newborns can try and mimic expressions. But not if it's done by a robot, isn't that stunning? <laughs> Even at minutes old, they showed they were social beings with a need to engage and respond. A few weeks old, most healthy babies make that very clear. Say a simple word, hello, and see a baby focus on your mouth. After a moment, they try to shape theirs to copy yours. And months later, they'll learn how to push air out at the same time and make the right sound, talking. The earliest stories a baby hears about its own life go something like this. What's the matter? Let's pick you up. You need a nappy change. Off it comes. Woof. Let's clean you up. Here's a new nappy, nice and fresh. Now, what shall we do? It's a minimalist tale, only about function, what's going on at that moment. But during it, something happens to the baby's benefit. There's an opening situation and a development, then a resolution that leads to who knows what in the next chapter of this tiny life. And given narrative about what they're doing in the present, babies start to understand language. That early social experience engages the brain on several levels. Of course, most of you here already know this. I'm just underlining the importance of story in everyday life. I'll lead on to... Who knows what? In the first draft of this lecture, I hardly knew. But I'm familiar with that uncomfortable space of starting to create. I trusted that some sort of story would reveal itself. Adults are not always aware of toddlers and young children listening and observing, conversation and gossip. Someone did what? Gossip 
takes the everyday to another level. It's about action and behaviour we may not have expected. It puts us in touch with the unusual, the outer world. Even though some gossip may well be fake news, the listening child learns how to gauge those stories by how other listeners react. Gossip makes us imagine and be amazed. When it's over, we come back to our own reality. But the boundaries of knowledge have been prodded. We've been made aware of possibilities. In 2015, Dr. Hutton of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center ran the first study to use a functional magnetic resonance imaging scan specifically to look at cognitive stimulation in the home and the, in the, home and the brains of four-year-old children. It was a small study that looked at how three kinds of storytelling activated four brain networks. It involved audio books, animation, and picture books. The four brain networks were language, visual perception, the ability to interpret the surrounding environment by what you see, and visual imagery, constructing mental images when learning new information in order to recall it better later. And the fourth network, the default mode was the most important. This is internal reflection or how something matters to you. When the children would read audiobooks, the language network was activated, but overall there was less connectivity between the networks. Children were struggling to understand. With animation, there was a lot of activity in audio and visual perception, but again, not much connectivity between all four brain networks. Hutton interpreted this as the animation doing all the work for the child, and the child's comprehension of the story was worst. With illustrated picture books, there was increased activity between and among all four networks, language, visual perception, imagery, and the default mode. Words and pictures together were bringing stories to life inside the mind. And the results in Hutton's experiment weren't as good overall as scores achieved for preschoolers when they were read to on a parent's lap. I wonder, the rumble of voice being so close to the parent or caregiver could be an echo of pre-birth and newborn experience. Hutton's experiment suggests a great deal about the need for community in terms of storytelling to children. The right social setting and the right presentation helps us best engage our brains early in the default mode that he called the seat of the soul, internal reflection, how something matters to you. I heard of a foster mother caring for a 12-year-old girl who had great trouble reading. The foster mother persevered with books, but with no sign at all of success. Then one day, the girl glanced up from a book with a look of awe and said, when I read, I get pictures in my mind. Does that happen to you? Oh, that story gives me chills. Until that moment, that child had been deprived of the experience of the power of reading. But it wasn't too late. How wonderful that mother was kind enough, strong enough, aware enough to persevere. Reluctant readers are possibly less skilled at processing language, at, at forming mental pictures, or reflecting on what they read. But the connectivity that develops imagination can be activated even if it's rather later than usual. I have always needed to read fiction, to be engaged in lives and deeds that echo my own, or probably more importantly, widen my mental horizons. Almost certainly, it's tied into my awareness from the days when my parents read me A.A. Milne's poems in a way that enchanted children, Milne wrote about the everyday, twined together with the impossible. The king pathetically says, I only want a little bit of butter for my bread. And the wise little boy warns his mother, you must never go down to the end of the town unless you go down with me. It taught me to carry stories and possibilities in my mind. But... In March last year, I confronted a huge gap in my childhood reading life. Let me explain. That month, I had an email from Penguin Random House, New Zealand. The children's publisher told me about the overseas success of Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. The authors, in a fairy tale manner, told the true stories of a hundred women, historical and contemporary, from all around the world, any race or culture, who had succeeded in discoveries, adventures, and professions. Penguin Random House had been brewing ideas for a local version, up to 50 women. The aim, to encourage girls from age 7 to 17 to widen their aspirations about careers and professions. Would I be interested in coming on board as the writer? 
The writing style was to be a blend of non-fiction and fiction, and they wanted the stories told in an engaging and descriptive way. There was a list of possible people to include already, very partial list, but they wanted their writer to have input into who she thought would be worthy to be included. Then came the catch, is that our deadline for the text is mid-July. Well, many thoughts beset me. First was a, a sort of rage that such a book hadn't been available when I was a girl. What could I have done sooner and better if it had been? Fright. Actually, let's call it terror. Not knowing if I could do the kind of research necessary. I write fiction, not non-fiction. Certainty that I could do the fairy tale manner. Completely blank as to what they meant by engaging and descriptive. Deep certainty that if I said no, when the local version was published with another writer's name on, I'd be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> But the deadline was crushing. Give two, two or three weeks for a contract to be signed, and it would be only 14 weeks to research, write, and revise all the profiles, engaging and descriptive profiles of women. <laughs> Not yet even selected. I was never going to say no, because women's stories, local, it's so important to hear our own stories, stories about what is possible. At primary school, I loved true stories. When um, Mr. Arnott said silent reading time, I'd almost teleport to the class library shelf and grab a history book. And it would be tales about Horatio holding the bridge, Charlemagne, um, Sir Francis Drake exploring. Token females would be Florence Nightingale and Madame Curie. Oh, I never wanted to emulate them. I'd have been a terrible nurse and even worse as a scientist. Goodness me. Otherwise, it was a lot of conventionally heroic blokes. Oh, there was Joan of Arc, but who'd want to emulate her? <laughs> um, though, in fact, at age eight, I did try to write, direct, and star in my own Joan of Arc play. It never came to performance. At the one and only rehearsal in the school hall, I leaned on a vaulting horse and cried, Men, come to my aid! The French and English armies, eight-year-old boys, ignored me completely and kept roaring after each other with imaginary swords. It probably offered me early significant insight into the different needs of story depending on gender. And I have questions about that later. What was happening in the world outside the school hall then and earlier? Only recently are we hearing some of it. In first and second world wars, as you will all know, women had helped hold domestic life together in the home as ever, but also in jobs that had been done by men. War was over, men returned, wanted their jobs back, and fair enough. But women seemed quietly pushed back behind their front doors, or they were doing highly valuable work behind other doors. And just two examples out of the millions. In 1935 in the States, the precursor to NASA hired five women to be their first computer pool at Langley campus. The NASA historian says the women were meticulous and accurate, and they didn't have to be paid very much. In the early 80s, I heard from my physician researcher husband, who seemed to think it unremarkable, that Nobel Prize winners Crick, Watson and Wilkins' discoveries about DNA were not theirs alone. There'd been a woman, Rosalind Franklin, whose work had never been adequately honoured. More and more such stories have become an avalanche. Recently, I heard about a 19th century Scottish portrait painter whose groundbreaking work the Royal Academy simply refused to exhibit because she was female. Stories about women, overlooked, even deliberately hidden. Why was the world like that? So staring at that email last year, I felt it was decades, centuries beyond time to address and redress the lack of the burying of women's stories to fill that gap. As I began work on Go Girl, a joyful global tsunami of books like Rebel Girls was already rising. Great women who changed the world, women in science, the marvelously titled She Persisted. I discovered how hard our own women persisted, struggling to follow their dreams. It's a kind of a floaty term. Listen, I'll tell you a story. It's from Go Girl, Margaret Mahi. 1936 to 2012. Once upon a time, a baby with mysterious powers was born in Fokotane. Her name was Margaret. It was some years before her powers were revealed. 
she could write stories that carried readers to fantastical worlds. When she was little, Margaret wanted stories to be true so badly that she tried to convince other children she spoke the languages of animals. Though she wanted to be a writer, she thought it would never earn much money. She had better make a living at something else. First, she tried nursing. She tried hard, but it didn't suit. So she went to university while she thought about what next and loved learning about philosophy and folk tales. At last, Margaret decided the best thing would be a job with books. She became a librarian. Margaret saw everything as an adventure. For example, she said that librarians dance on a ridge. On one side there is order, on the other lies chaos. She never married, but had two little girls. After a busy day at the library, she'd race home to cook for her daughters. She fed the dogs, cats, guinea pigs, rabbits, birds, and whatever else was around at the time. Then she tucked her girls into bed. Finally, she could rush to her desk. There, till late at night, Margaret wove her word enchantments. An American publisher saw some of Margaret's stories from the school journal. Like a fairy godmother with money rather than magic, the publisher flew to New Zealand to examine everything Margaret had written. The lion in the meadow and this one and these must be published as books, she declared. Margaret's first picture books made her famous almost at once. Her first two novels each won the Carnegie Medal. But it was still a while before Margaret could afford to spend all her time writing tales of adventure and fun for children from toddlers to teenagers. She won prize after prize all over the world. The list is so long that it would never fit on a page unless the print was so small that even a mouse would have to squint. So the great New Zealand writer whose work is honoured in the title of this lecture achieved remarkable success but her journey seems less like following a dream, more like labouring uphill for years on a dark night with a load that hardly lightened. Writing Go Girl became like being a stage manager, figuring out when with each story to open the curtain to show the reader how a particular woman managed to break barriers, how she coped with failure, how she persisted. None of the women showed stereotypical female ways of behaving. They had individual approaches, motivation, and personalities. The word limit for each story was 350 words. That's less than one A4 page. With some, like Margaret's, I wrote very condensed biographies. But a storybook needs variety, a mix of approaches to give the book quiet moments, exciting moments. Every story needed its own voice, one that spoke of the character of the woman. I wanted a range of modes of telling to reflect the range of women who march and dance and struggle over the pages. Some could be more imaginative, or perhaps focused on a single incident like the Jean Batten tale, or with a refrain, Lisa Tamati, ultramarathon runner, with the refrain, oh really? Or with an image to focus the life. As I came upon with the story Hardest to Write, Helen Clark's, I finally read that when she became a minister, a cheap old briefcase had been left behind in her new office. Rather than buy a fancy new one, she insisted she'd use the second-hand one. It was just right for the job. And so was that image, just right for my job. <clears throat> when I'd said yes to writing Go Girl, my very first thought was there must be diversity, racially and culturally, of course. But I wanted any reader who opened the book to find someone like them. I wanted the shy girl. I wanted the girl who rushes at everything and finally finds something to focus on. The girl whose family didn't expect her to amount to much. The girl who could never be bothered with fuss. The girl who was first in all her family to go to university. The girl who managed to rise out of tragedy. Oh, I've always managed, maintained that no subject matter is too awful for children. What matters is the way the author treats it. I finally sort of had to um, man up. I had to write about the New Zealand land wars, Ahumaita Pirata, Maori warrior, and not upset seven-year-olds, the lower range of the book's readership. I had to write about Beatrice Tinsley's terrible choice between family and career, and Sophie Pascoe's accident. Researching for Go Girl, I saw an overview of New Zealand history, at least from the land wars to the present. I saw the generosity and compassion of women Dr. Margaret Crookshank, first woman GP, and I can't read her story aloud without crying, so you're not going to get that. <laughs> Dame Mira Shashi with the Māori Women's Welfare League. 
Dame Fina Cooper, Beatrice Formuina, moving from her success in sport to set up ways to help younger Pacifica men and women, and way back, Elizabeth McCombs, first woman MP here in Christchurch. Most dear to me became Rita Angus, who refused to go overseas because it is important for me to be a woman artist in this country. When news broke about Go Girl's coming publication, I read on social media, do we really need a local version of Rebel Girls? Yes, our New Zealand stories about our women. Booksellers have told the publisher and myself about, for instance, seeing Asian New Zealand girls off-handedly flicking through the book stop at a face like theirs. Pacifica girls suddenly frozen at a page with a face like theirs. I've heard of sports mad girls racing through the sportswomen stories first and then devouring all the other profiles. I've heard of mothers carrying the book to the bookshop counter saying, I have to buy this for my daughter. And daughters saying, it's for my mother. <laughs> At an event at the Hutton Theatre in Dunedin earlier this year with one of the illustrators, and do look at the book to see who the illustrators are. There's nine of them, and they are all fabulous. Um, and one of the profiled women, orca specialist Ingrid Visser, I saw girls marching in, copies of Go Girl clutched like warrior breastplates. Overwhelmingly, I saw those girls engaged by the reality of book full of our own stories that they felt related to them directly. Stories that say, in that quiet space that's just you and the page, if you choose, you can do this too. I've heard of a boy who took Go Girl to school and told his class, this book is for any child who's been told they can't do something. Had my generation, male and female, seen New Zealand women honoured by being together in a book, who knows what it might have done for us. When girls and boys are between, say, five and nine years old, they often ask, tell me about when I was little. If you oblige, their faces show a mix of pleasure and equally delicious embarrassment. Because hearing their own stories helps them place themselves, ground themselves. It helps their sense of self. Naturally, we need stories for boys too, stories that show the range of male endeavour. I'm not surprised that this year, Quirkus UK brought out stories for boys who dare to be different, and New Zealand's Oh Boy will be out soon. But on social media and in person, I've heard some anger that boys' stories along the lines of Rebel Girls and Go Girls are being published now. The argument is, it's too early, it isn't fair, give women more time in the spotlight. Well, I partly agree, but more strongly, I feel, you know, why blame our boys for the attitudes of the past? Why? They need to see a range of approaches to life, to success. Don't punish them by depriving them of a balance. Rigid ideas about how men and women ought to behave are no help to us. These books show that the evil twins, toxic masculinity, a syndrome that promotes violence, and its sister, toxic, helpless, passive femininity, don't have to reign over us. But... <clears throat> Do boys need different types of story told in a different way to the way girls' stories need to be told? There's a lot to consider trying to figure out what's going on. In March this year, a local website for children's literature, The Zapling, which is fabulous, by the way, published a piece by Elizabeth Heritage on gender imbalance in New Zealand children's books. She found fewer, protagonists, fewer female protagonists in books for children. And she pointed to studies that said the dearth of female characters gives boys a sense of entitlement and lowers girls' self-esteem and occupational aspirations. As I said, a lot to consider. One question is, are parents, teachers, librarians and publishers consciously or unconsciously doing something that turns boys away from female protagonists? Because received wisdom says boys don't read girls. <laughs> boys don't read books with girls as leads. Yet, in a discussion on the library listserv, New Zealand Library Listserv, most of the participants disputed this. A male librarian at an all-boys all school said that especially in fantasy and science fiction, boys didn't care who the main character was as long as it was a good story. Yet, Kyle Mewburn told me her books with male protagonists tend to sell better. Yet, Stacey Gregg's publisher packages her novels about girls and horses in, in pastel-like Barbie colours. Of course, very few boys would pick them up. 
and plenty of girls wouldn't either. But a school librarian challenged boys at her school to ignore the latest cover. They did and were so impressed they pleaded for more Stacey Gregg books. I checked my own writing for bias. When I began writing, it was short stories, mostly with male protagonists. I think I'd been unconsciously copying what most New Zealand authors I'd read actually did, write about men. Once I realised, with a bit of a shock, I wrote short stories with women protagonists. This was after my little family's return from three years in California when I met Fiona Kidman, who gave me important encouragement. It seemed that while I'd been away, women authors here had sprung up in a somewhat bleak landscape to add colour and wit, and they have kept on springing. My adult novels so far have women protagonists. The first was even called The Warrior Queen, though I should say the draft title was The Parrot's Version. I was telling the woman's side of the marriage train wreck. Her spouse would have had an entirely different view of it. Ex-spouses invariably do, and he was definitely going to be an ex-spouse. When I began writing the first of my fantasy books for children, The Travelling Restaurant, I deliberately chose a boy protagonist. There are active female characters in key roles, but I wanted to show a boy succeeding not by using force, but by using his wits and caring for others. I had no real expectation the book would ever be published. Well, I was having such fun. <laughs> Yet here's another anecdote. On a children's book award tour for The Travelling Restaurant, my first talk was in a primary school library. I began my spiel. Jasper isn't very good looking. His parents don't seem to think he's very bright. Oh, yikes, I thought this isn't going to grab them. No, I glanced up. Even the handsome, highly able-looking boys were sitting up wide-eyed. But at the end of the talk, a lot of the girls stayed to ask questions, and the boys vanished. Oh, well. A librarian rushed after them and came back with a grin. They'd all lined up at the reserves desk. The following year, the principal told me, you might not be especially pleased to hear this, but The Travelling Restaurant is our most stolen library book. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that, but it definitely intrigued me that a story about a vulnerable male had hit a spot. Story and voice. In a piece of writing, voice is tone and register. The writer's choices in this regard help to carry and give shape to the subject matter. If we don't trust the voice or find it relevant, we don't buy into the story. One of the key aspects to any successful story for children is that it gives agency to the child or childlike figure at its centre. It authenticates the experience of being a child. It gives a voice to children and speaks to them. I don't want to read about shoot-em-up heroes or sports warriors, male or female, and nor do many boys. They like novels with plots that have puzzles to solve or barrels of humour or both. After the eight or nine or so, boys tend to prefer non-fiction. <clears throat> but many simply want to play Fortnite or be outside making their own stories <clears throat> and their explo exploits on the playground and sports field rather than reading, which seems passive. Does it matter if they don't read, either fiction or non-fiction? Can they be encouraged? I don't know. I just have two remarkable examples that illustrate each end of the silken ribbon of reading and story and what children get from it. In a piece called Tales from Grimm, published in 1975, Janet Frame describes herself at seven years old. Her new friend Poppy picked a book out of a pile of coal sacks, shook off some slaters and gave it to her. <clears throat> it was Grimm's fairy tales. All those stories together, no pictures, a real book. Janet describes how much the stories meant to her, the plunge into each first sentence, the terror of realising she was halfway through a tale, unable to go back, but she had to go on. Poppy taught her bad language too, and Janet's parents made her return the book. But, Janet said, the stories themselves were not returned. The magic of them stayed inside her. Here's a painting by George Leslie Dunlop, Alice in Wonderland. Look at the girl's distant gaze, the stillness. Her mother's voice and the author's voice have sent the child to a far-off but inner world where she watches the story take place. You'll see it later. I love it so much. <laughs> and now to Frederick Douglass, an American social reformer, abolitionist, writer, statesman. He was born in 1818, a slave and, of course, treated like property. 
When he was 12, Sophia Auld, wife of his then owner, taught little Frederick the alphabet. When Hugh Auld heard, he refused to let the boy have any more lessons. And young Frederick realised, knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. So he set about teaching himself to read, because knowledge is power. When I searched for images of boys reading, this was the more typical. The boy using books to escape physically or to climb up, the knowledge in books raises him up. Reading, the ability to read, is certainly power. It's a theme in my next children's novel, in fact. I had great trouble bringing that manuscript to a state where setting, various settings, characters and action came together. I put it aside to write Go Girl. Then I went back into the novel. I found that having faced the dark material in Go Girl's true life stories helped me confront the material in the novel. A boy on the cusp of becoming a man, gaining independence from the toxic neediness of his mother. I'd better add here that she isn't entirely human. Back to voice, to tone and register. The first voice is the mother's voice. And boys are meant to separate themselves from the mother. And there are as many ways of doing that as there are boys. Girls too are meant to separate themselves from dependency to self-determined. And we're far more aware these days of children figuring out their gender. And what about the range of all of them, the voices and stories they need to hear? The thing is, any story for children should give voice to the concerns of being a child. In all their diversity, at all their stages, children need and deserve that. Publishers will say they want to publish books about diversity. Whether they do or not, it's a matter of financial risk. For instance, in this tiny local market, it will be hard to sell enough picture books about gender diversity to break even. And these brave publishers to give an outlet to those voices, to give variety to what's offered on the literary table. If a child doesn't read at all, it is worrying. But if you or I don't buy into a particular writing style or subject matter, why should we read it? If a child does read, but it's nothing but comics, like they're insisting on a diet of mental canned spaghetti, I don't think we need worry too much. <coughs> learning to relish reading can be like learning to appreciate broccoli. It might happen at some time, or it might not. You've just got to keep putting the broccoli on the table and see what happens. And they've got to see you eating it, or reading, reading something and getting something out of it. But, of course, it's not that easy. Some children just don't turn to reading for strength or replenishment. And it's worth saying here, generally men don't read as much as women. Recent New Zealand Book Council figures prove that. There have been some put out just um, this month and there were some last year as well. But another anecdote about reading tastes. Duffy Books, as most of you will know, give free books to primary schools. A publishing friend of mine helped box up some Duffy Books and heard this. It wasn't much use sending fiction to the very low decile schools in that particular area at any rate. The children read virtually no fiction, but they would grab non-fiction. I thought, maybe they need affirmation about the real world and their place in it before their imaginations can begin to explore possibility. So again, local true stories have a role in giving context to the lives of our young people. Some of you will know of David Riley, Reading Warrior, a local educator who saw Pacifica boys really struggling with reading. He began writing his own books just for those boys and now works with literacy and reading recovery. I saw him one-on-one -on -one with two very different boys, each about 10 years old, each shivering with despair that they couldn't read. David talked to them softly with utter concentration. In turn, each boy began to smile through his tears and then left head up, shoulders back. Yes, they are going to do it. But that's what it's all about. David's books, true stories about sports people do the trick. He says, if boys are interested in the subject matter, they don't know they're reading. The best story for each child is whatever challenges and affirms that child's inner self and coaxes us into the wider world. There's a term snaffled from American baseball, the home run book. It's the book that gives one positive reading experience that can make a child a committed, lifelong reader. It takes a piece of luck, a dedicated teacher, or an inspired librarian to find the right story. And as well as any gender differences around reading, of course you see different needs and responses in all the age groups, preschool, primary, intermediate, and young adult. 
Lewis Carroll, first to write directly for children, gave us Alice, who visited Wonderland and went through the looking glass. His child characters questioned the adult world and the madness of grown-ups. That's exactly what children up to 12 ought to do while they observe the adult world and how it operates. I believe that up to early adolescence, children prefer the voyage and return story pattern. They need the glow of hope to know that safety is there in the end. I wonder if hope fosters imagination, which in turn can foster hope. And those more adult books that a child can read might not be big on hope. You hear from proud parents that a child has an adult reading age. Well, that's great, but there's reading, reading burnout. Another mother told me her 12-year-old girl had been an avid reader, forging through all the series her friends were into, like The Hunger Games, His Dark Materials, many, many others. Those books can be read and understood by 12-year-olds, but emotionally and psychologically, those abrasive, sometimes depressing books are not designed for younger children. They were wrong for this girl, even damaging, and she stopped reading. So the mother began reading aloud with her girl a mid-grade fantasy series with Voyage and Return about families reuniting. And now the girl was reading for herself again. There's a reason for middle-grade fiction written especially for that age group. And young adult books are for teenagers learning what it's like to move into the adult world and take those responsibilities for themselves. Teenage issues are teenage issues, wherever, however, whoever, and they need to read about them. Certainly, reading can open doors on tragedy. I saw my younger daughter, about 14 at the time, awash with tears. I stopped dead and asked what the matter was. She held up a copy of Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. She was at the last pages. I just crept away, and we talked about it later. Even younger children need sad and scary stories in safe surroundings. To worry that Cruella de Vil will have her gorgeous black and white spotted coat, soft as the pelts of 99 Dalmatian puppies. They need to read how Pongo and Mrs. Mum and Dad Dalmatian work hard to save their own puppies and every last other one. By contrast, children need to read to fall about laughing at Terry and Andy on the umpteenth floor of the treehouse. Those characters have amazing ideas, try to put them into practice and deal with the consequences. The voice of the stories is anarchic and authentic and largely pictorial, but, or and, those stories give the child characters agencies, agency and say, it's okay to be a kid. And our boys and girls need to read local authors like Des Hunt about good warriors, eco-warriors, set in our context, the New Zealand landscape. They need to read Fleur Beale's books, an all-boys school loved I Am Not Esther and used it for years. And her Speed Freak is a strong story about male role models. A reluctant boy reader might not even know he's reading. I also believe children need to read fantasy. Though it's not set in the real world, it's still about real-life emotions, family and relationship difficulties. And when moral and ethical problems are at that other world distance, they might even seem clearer to a child reader. Very few stories suitable for children were written at all before the development of the fairy tale in the late 17th century, when the traditional spoken tales began to be written down by many authors. The best known is Charles Perrault with Conde Ma Mère, but he was outnumbered and even preceded by several women like Marie Catherine, Baroness Dornoy. So why should Perrault be the best known? Just asking. In fairy tales from all around the world, there are key differences between girl and boy main characters. I should have seen that years ago, or consciously been aware of it. Um, I wasn't until I was preparing this. There's, of course, the typical character of the third son and of Jack the every boy, who wins through by showing empathy, using wit as much as strength. And there are seven um, similar tales about the third sister. There are also Cinderella tales, there is Bluebeard's Wife and Little Red Riding Hood, tales in which a young woman or a girl defends herself against oppression by male figures and sometimes by other women, like ugly sisters. The original wise old women storytellers, the gossips, couched social problems of women in ways which other women could understand. Everyday problems, everyday stories, moving to imagination-stretching marvels that work the muscles in the mind and that deep network. Children need it all, don't they? Now more than ever. I've seen myself 
lack of language stimulation through conversation and story and reading aloud deprives even the children of a well-off intelligent family. The most awful modern curse must be, may your parents be addicts to their smartphones and never encourage you to have a vocabulary. A recent article in The Guardian said 28% of four and five-year-olds in the UK cannot communicate in full sentences. It's enough to make writers wonder why they keep going. So many questions, not enough answers. I've always written for children and adults. Now and then I'm told that's unusual, I don't think it is, or asked what's the difference. I sometimes sense the speaker feels as I go down market writing for children as if it's somehow shameful. So far I've bitten back amusement or a sharp comment back. <laughs> the simple answer is there's no difference. Each story that wants to be written just asks for its particular audience. I suppose writing for children can feel more playful. There are fewer restraints on subject matter or imagination, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. There are certainly more restraints in the way of responsibility to your audience. You write for children, but you are an adult. You have to exercise more judgment on what you write and why because the audience doesn't have as much reading experience, as much life experience. You cannot tell them what to think. You cannot preach. You cannot fudge. You must be aware of your audience in a way that you just don't when you write for adults. I'd say writers for children are very aware of the market and ask themselves, will boys read this? Are the female characters active enough? But I quote the Otago University Arts Fellows webpage. The question for all creative work music, dance, art, and writing for adults and children is, will it challenge, provoke, and reassure and tell us who we are? All those things that the mother's voice originally does or ought to do. Storytelling continues that process. Writing is alchemy. Any author creates a voice. The reader hears, sees, and feels. Writing for children is a double journey. It hopes to create a voice that can be trusted. But at the same time, for the writer, it can sometimes be a way of trying again to find the enchanted inner world of being new to story, to the first discovery of the deep level, that challenging space. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> and Barbara has time for some questions. Um, we maybe have about three, four minutes. Five. Five more minutes. Does it, if you have ten. a question. She's saying ten. Oh, ten. ten. Fantastic. Oh, good. If you have a <laughs> question, did, please raise your hand. The time. <laughs> There's a question. Um, I probably don't need that. Oh, I can. <laughs> um, I was fascinated about um, the power of reading on a lap for little, little children mm. and how many brain networks it engages. Yes. I actually work at a secondary school, among many other things. I'm also in theatre. Mm. But I'm wondering if um, picture books for kids who can't read when they go into year nine, because we've got quite a few who are really mm -hmm. bad readers at year nine, having picture books for those, does, would that... Is there any research that that would help re-engage or connect all those networks? I think there is research about, about that sort of problem. Um, in fact, I've read somewhere fairly recently, um, I can't give you any detail, but, but it was a, a, a teacher saying that, uh, that she used picture books with her, with her year nines and, 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 uh, and older just to help them. But it would need to be a picture book with, with more adult content. And of course, there are more of those about these days. So um, yes, um, I'd go for that, definitely. Question up here. With such a short time frame, how did you actually do your research for Go Girl? In a state of terror. <laughs> well, um, we had quite a few biographies at home in our in our own library that, that were useful. Rita Angus, um, um, Tina Cooper, that sort of thing. Um, uh, the internet was a godsend. The local library was a godsend. Um, but the, the internet was, was really useful in ways that I hadn't quite expected. I was struggling, for instance, with the, the Rita Angus story, which was the last one I wrote. 
Um, and I, th I thought, there's just so much in her life. She's just so interesting. How can I manage it? And then I saw there was a little little um, film clip, um, New Zealand, New Zealand on air online or something, and it was a little documentary and showed her little cottage in Thorndon and the way up to the cottage and the beautiful vegetation all around it. And I thought, that's the image. That's the image I can build the story around. It was like a fairy tale cottage, and I thought I can start the story at the end of her life and go back. And and so once I had a that idea, the rest of it could come in, and I could I could then just briefly mention the key points going back from when from her old age through to when she was a child. She she reckoned she'd been born an artist as soon as her baby fingers could hold a pencil. She started to draw, and you know that was. So it was a lot of serendipity, <laughs> but um, I think one of the funniest days I had really was thinking, oh my goodness, I was going through alphabetically at that point, and I said to myself, right, the next two coming up that I have to do today are Georgina Bayer and Hayley Westerner. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is going to be an entertaining day, <laughs> and it was. <laughs> did, you, did you have to literally work out how many you had to do a day? I did, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then... Was it an act of um, writing and then compressing, or did you have a sense of the sort of music and rhythm of 350 words right from the beginning? It's interesting, and I th I'm sure you've experienced this too. After you've been writing a few years, you have a, a kind of sense that you're not even particularly aware of, of how long a piece ought to be. Mm. And, and so um, I quite quickly knew but it was mostly finding a shape for the story, and that helped to compress it. And in some ways, that, that word count was very helpful. I mean, it was a bit like having to write a poem with a certain mm -hmm. framework, a certain pattern mm -hmm. that you just had to stick to, um, but then make variations on it. So that was, that was difficult. <laughs> Any other questions? I have another couple. <laughs> Barbara, you strike me as an extraordinarily disciplined person. You've managed to work at many corners of the book ecosystem and mm. you've maintained projects simultaneously, I can only think, because you've been editing as well as writing over mm. the years. Mm. What, is it just sheer terror with deadlines <laughs> that, push, that pushes you through that? I mean, Well, I, I, I don't usually work to deadlines. Mm. Uh, with the anthologies, of course, yes, but that was, that was different. But with my own writing, this was the mm. first time I'd actually had a deadline mm. that was so... Well, I had a deadline for you once. <laughs> <laughs> but for something as big as this, and, um, and I, I didn't know how I would manage, and I... Um, I just thought, well, I, I just so badly want to try because I think this book is so important and I want to be the person who writes it. Um, but after I... Now, my husband is... Um, he's involved in our literary business and he, he's my agent. And he said to me only about three months ago, he said, you know, if you had actually direct, directly asked me whether you should do it or not right at the start, I would have said no because that deadline was too tight. <laughs> I was so grateful that he didn't mm. say no, mm. but um, but it was crushing. I you know I did nothing else, nothing else. You talked about the um, Rita Angus's cottage being this sort of um, launching point of a kernel around yes. which that story mm. um, made itself. Mm -hmm. And the Margaret Mahi story, um, you're sort of channeling or ventriloquizing an aspect of her writing voice to tell the story of her magical. Kind yes, of life. I mean, yes, magic was sort of yeah. the, the language. So presumably the, those moments of recognition happen for every single one of them. I'm interested to know how it happens, say, with sports people. Well, that is interesting because I don't really have much of a feeling for sport. Mm. Um, and I thought, mm, how will I manage that, those? But, but in the end, it, it, um, it became quite easy. With some stories, as I said, I could do a fairly direct biography. But with, um, for instance, with, with Beatrice Fomuina, I, I read that she, she was distraught when, when her, one of her early coaches died. 
And then I read that she'd, once she left sport, she went on to help other people set up the, the best Pacifica Academy. And I thought, that's, that ties it together. It's, it's to do with coaching. It's to do with helping people. And so that made a good story. I had to search for things that would fit together or something that would bring it to life. Mm. Mm. Um, and then did the shape of that 350 words sort of show itself um, fairly easily? Yes, um, it, it did. Um, with the Lisa Tamati story, I was quite pleased because at several points during her career, um, people, starting with a boyfriend and then some various medical people saying, you can't do this, you can't do this. And each time I had her say, oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> so uh, the refrain helped, helped to sort of stitch it mm. together. And Barbara, just as a, a matter of interest, the nine, is it nine illustrators? Yes. All New Zealand yes. illustrators. Did you two have a hand in deciding who might... Um, illustrate each person? Was it a collaborat um, collaboration with you no, and the publisher? No, the, the, the publisher um, <coughs> was doing all that. Mm. I think they, they, I did have input into, into the selection, but I think at a, after a very short time, they thought, oh golly, that deadline's too tight. Let's just get Barbara to write and we'll do the, we'll do the mm. other mm. stuff. And I must admit, when they said they were going to have nine illustrators, I thought, that might be too many. Is that going to make the book look a bit messy and you know not really hold together? But then as soon as the draft illustrations began to come in and they sent them to me as that happened, I could see just what a fabulous bouquet it was going to be in the end. And I think they were, they were just inspired to do that. Mm. Very different styles and, and um, were all just incredibly talented. Mm. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I have a question just following up from that. Did you find yourself working in collaboration with the artists or did you write and they did their art separately and then it came together or did you ever find yourself inspired by what was in front of you from the illustrators or vice versa? Um, it, it was very interesting. With one or two, I think it did become a little bit collaborative right at the end with some fine tuning. But what... <laughs> They couldn't really do much. They couldn't finish the illustrations until the stories were finished. So they were, they had things drafted, but they had to wait. And, you know, I, so then, then they had to do a lot of work in a rush. But what enchants me about so many of the illustrations is that they've, they've chosen one tiny little thing, like the, the wonderful illustration of Kate Edgar, the uh, first woman to get a university degree. Oh, God, I hope I'm getting all the details right by now. I'm starting to fade. <laughs> there's, there's a little pencil tucked behind her ear. And, uh, you know, if you look at them closely, there's just these tiny little, tiny wee things. Yeah, mm. yeah. And mm. Fifi Coulson's illustrations are just gorgeous. Um, there's a, behind the image of the woman, there's a little almost ghostly image of the woman as a child. And engaging in some sort of activity that showed where her career was going to take her, and it's just inspired. Mm. Wonderful. Mm. Mm. We have one more time for one more question. Was the opportunity to engage an interview with any of your? Uh, well, subjects? I started. That's interesting. I started thinking I would I would have to interview all the ones that were contemporary. Um, and I almost instantly found out how hard it was to get hold of them. They're so successful, they're protected by trusts and agents and all sorts of barriers, and I, this is going to be impossible. <clears throat> so the publisher said, right, just, just write them and we'll show the women the stories when you're finished. And, and that was, was really helpful because with some of them, it was very hard to figure out exactly what happened at certain points because a journalist would have written a story and maybe the editor had changed something that made it not quite true. Another journalist had copied that and, you know, um, just everything sort of fell apart and, and I could finally pin down exactly what had happened. So that was important, but it was only at that very late stage. Mm. Thank you, everyone. Um, huge thanks to Barbara. Um, you gave us a very important sort of um, cradle-to-grave sense of the importance of reading among much, mm -hmm. much else. Mm -hmm. 
It's worth saying here that um, not only have the Book Council published um, alarming figures about reading in New Zealand, mm -hmm. National Library has even more alarming ones, which suggest that 50% of New Zealanders have a tricky relationship with text, meaning mm -hmm. they are you know, functionally illiterate in certain ways. Um, the National Library is about to embark on um, a plan um, to make New Zealand a country of readers for pleasure. Barbara, you mm -hmm. have, for the entirety of your career, um, been working at that very coalface in a dozen different mm -hmm. ways. And um, if you hadn't been the author of Go Girls, you should probably have been in there. So thank you very much. <laughs> for thank you. <laughs> oh, you're a sweet. Thank you.